Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm your host this week, Richie Plush. During this episode, we're going to discuss a few action items and important steps you can take to make sure that your family is safe. Um, We're going to cover some topics like uh, fire safety and also uh, natural disaster preparedness, and then just some general tips on what to do if you're working with or if you have a family member who is engaging in wandering behavior, ways you can help prevent that. I hope that you stick with us until the end of this episode. There's some very important topics in here and, and some great takeaways that hopefully you can uh, utilize in your homes to make sure your families are safe. Our guest this week is Kelly McKinnon Birmingham, who has been working with individuals with autism and other dis- developmental disabilities for the past 25 years. She has a variety of experiences, but for the purposes of our conversation, it's about the content creation for the September 26th project website. I hope you learn a lot from this episode with Kelly McKinnon Birmingham. Kelly, thank you so much for joining this week. It's great to have you here. Hi, Richie. Thanks for having me. So what I really want to talk about is something that I don't get, I don't think gets enough attention in our field. Um, I really want to talk about safety and safety preparation and all those things that go into being safe before an event happens. Um, But first, I, I want to dive into it a little bit. What are some considerations for both families and clinicians regarding safety and preparation that you've that you've come across? Sure. So it's actually an area that I've spent quite a number of years focusing on, uh, at least the last 10 years. I think um, my my original background comes from working in group homes with adults with developmental disabilities. And in Massachusetts, when we were closing down the state institutions there, and safety was such a huge component of the work that we did, that safety sort of always on top of mind for me. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at quality of life indicators, and there aren't a lot of great tools out there. And I've created my own and collaborated with other people and gone back and forth. And what I found is when you talk to families, um, particularly families that are uh, further along in their journey of autism, you know, maybe adolescence into adulthood, they always talk and say that they just want their children, um, number one, to be healthy, number two, happy, number three, safe. And so the safety aspect is so important. What does that mean for each family? And then there are, you know, in general, just some like very basic things that we all need to take into consideration um, for our families on safety. So let's dive into that a little bit. You know, I mean, healthy, happy and safe. I think those are things that any parent would want for their child. Right. And, and, you know, in that order, I would hope or, you know, in any order, I guess. But what, what are some things that we need to be thinking about when our kids are younger versus when they're older? Right. So so what are some things that five year olds should be learning about safety? And then let's talk about what teenagers and young adults should be learning about safety. 
Yeah, that's such a great question because it can vary. Um, it's mm -hmm. so individualized, but yet the same. So if you're thinking about household safety, that's usually where I start. Um, and is the home environment in general a safe environment for the child to live in? And I've certainly been in homes where it wasn't, um, whether it was clean or not. Um, you know, is there water, plumbing, and food? Are there fire um, arms in the home? And then we get to if something happens in the home, which is either going to be a fire, and we're in California, so that's always top of mind. Um, or if you live in the Midwest, is it going to be a tornado or is it going to be a hurricane or a flood? But all of those um, emergency situations require some kind of response. And so that response then is, what is the response? And that changes from a five-year-old to an older child, right? Mm -hmm. A little child, if you needed to exit your home, you likely could pick up the child and carry them. So um, having an exit plan where to go and a meeting spot in case people are separated. And we always say that in a family, there should be one person designated for the child with autism to ensure they get out safely into the meeting spot, if at all possible. Um, if not, then is there a meeting spot and sort of like a neighbor tree, if you will, that are there to help look out for the child with autism. Now, if you get in the case of an older child, you know, big, big young man who you can't carry out of the home, you need a completely different set of plans and strategies to get that person out of the home. And it's often, are they going to follow the command of the parent saying, get out of the home? Or if there's a device such as a fire alarm um, to get out of the home. And so the needs are the same, but it's very, it has to be very individualized based on the age of the child, the size of the child, the location of the home, who's with the family. I immediately switched into like clinician mode and I'm thinking, how, what are some things we have to teach, right? We would have to teach, you know, practicing leaving the house, hearing the fire alarm and what do we do and how do we respond? Right. And, you know, it's, it's, again, you're, you're saying the goal is get out of the house, right? The, the goal for a five-year-old may be listen for mom and dad or whomever, hold their hand, ex you know, leave with them versus 22-year-old who may, it may be hear a fire alarm or recognize something's wrong and leave, right? It's, so you, we would have to teach the identifying the situation and also the response to that, right? That's right. And I know in doing this work for so long, um, particularly in the event of a fire or a tornado, um, getting out into the safe spot is number one. And so how that child gets out will vary depending on if their bedroom's on the top floor or bottom floor. Um, and then we also are faced with the situation, we have a lot of families who have their house complete lockdown because maybe their child is a wanderer or looks unsafely from the home. And so then there needs to be considerations for that family on you know, discrimination between you don't leave the house unless these certain things happen, and then you may leave the house to this spot. And what does that look like? So it's really in a functional analysis of the child's skills and the and the steps that need to happen to to manage the emergency. Yeah, yeah. What you just said kind of really put a whole different spin on it in my mind, right? My daughter sleepwalks. And so we had to put a special lock on our front door because she has walked out of our home. Okay. So all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I didn't even consider that, but that's, that's an extra layer to 
for someone, an extra barrier for someone who's trying to get out in the case of an emergency. Exactly. So it's really complicated and super individualized, but the goal is still the same. Get away from the danger to the safe location. Right. And what um, what conversations should parents and caregivers be having with clinicians about this? You know, obviously, we want to bring this up before there's an emergency, before there's something significant, a fire or whatever it may be. How, how, how can they how can they approach them and have this conversation? You know, that's that's been actually a little bit of a complicated issue, um, I am finding. Some organizations, and I know your organization does and my organization does, have sort of a home emergency expectation list. And we put them in place, frankly, for the safety of our therapists, right? We want our therapists going into homes um, where they feel safe and secure. Um, but a byproduct of that is if those tools also talk about some general safety items for family, and that comes about with sort of that initial, um, in that initial maybe parent clinical interview about not only having a safe environment for the therapist and those expectations, but do they, is their home safe for themselves? And do they have simple plans to manage um, in an emergency? We, um, I do know that um, I feel very strongly about that. Um, we are trying to send that message around. I'm partnering with your organization actually at a conference coming up to try to talk to ABA providers because a lot of providers might say that this is not in their scope of competency. And I understand that because it may likely not be. But if we start the conversation with families just around, you know, these home expectations for both our, our therapists and our families, from there, we can provide resources. And, and training to help with that scope of competency. Right, right. And I think so much of it has to be planning early. You know, it's it's not, you know, you never know when these things are going to happen. You never know when there's right. going to be a fire or a flood or in California, an earthquake or any other, you know, an, any other right. disaster. And so it's, it's, you know, my wife was laughing at me about a year ago. I made it a point to buy, you know, we've got 30 days worth of water and, and <laughs> some prepackaged food. And she laughed at me, but I felt this sense of relief knowing that it's in the garage and I don't have to worry that it's just there. And hopefully I'll never need it and never use it, but it's there. And it took me, you know, a, an hour or so to find everything online and order it. And, and then now it just sits and I never have to stress about that piece of it. Um, That's excellent. I think, I think, you know, not, not, I'm not trying to brag, but I think one of the things that families should consider is a little preparation can go a long way and being able to take an hour or whatever it is and make sure that that's set up is going to alleviate us if there ever is a situation, right? And well, that actually brings us right to the September 26th project, because that was exactly the message we were trying to say, that if on or around September 26th, if you go onto our website and follow our safety checklists, and we have three of them, and the first one being fire prevention, fire safety and prevention, and the second one is other general natural disasters, um, and the third one um, in the event of a significant wandering or elopement situation, and you are exactly right. If you take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour of preparation, you know, at a minimum once a year, then you can have some peace of mind that you, you know, you are likely going to be somewhat prepared. 
I want to get into those, but before we get there, I don't know that everyone in our audience is familiar with the September 26 project. So can you give us a little bit of information about uh, sort of why it came to be and the mission and purpose of the organization? Absolutely. So um, you can find the website it is literally september26.org. And um, it is called the T September 26 project. And it was a project um, that we spent a year on. Um, there was a, a mom, um, Fadal, and her son, Muhammad. And Fadal was very, very active in the autism community and ABA community. Um, she was on, she was very involved in Cal ABBA, our state ABA association, um, very involved, particularly in the stakeholder committee, which um, someone in your organization runs that committee, Jocelyn. And um, she was very, um, very influential in the ABA um, insurance law passing in California. She was one of the main advocates and lobbyists for that. And so a lot of us have her to thank for having, um, you know, ABA per, paid for by insurances in the state right. of California when that passed. And so she was a tremendous force that a lot of people knew. Um, I knew her in a periphery level, but I know a lot of folks in the ABA community and the autism community who were fiercely close to her. And her message early on was that um, her son, Moo, was severely impacted and she didn't want other families to have to fight and scrape to get the things she had to do for her son. So she was a fierce advocate. Um, last September 26, her home caught on fire and it was actually the second time it had caught on fire due to an electrical um, issue. And um, Moo's bedroom was on the upstairs. And I know this from working alongside the two sisters. And one of the sisters was in the home with her daughter at the time and a uh, fire broke out. They did not have working fire alarms. And so no one, they were not alerted to the fire by that. Um, they were alerted because the, um, niece woke up and smelled smoke and yelled for everyone to get out of the house. Um, they did not have a working fire extinguisher. And they did not have an exit plan or strategy. And so um, they all were able to get out of the house, um, the aunt, the niece, and Fada. But her son, Moo, whose bedroom was on the second floor, he would not leave. He wouldn't leave and follow the command to get out of the house. And so... Um, Fada, the mom, ran back into the home. And what... Um, their sister, Maysoon, who is in the home, has said is that sh very shortly after that, they do believe they stopped hearing Fada yell for Mu to leave. And so they do think the smoke um, kind of overtook them and they they burned. They passed in the fire yeah. um, and the firemen. Um, when they removed them, it took several of them to remove them because Mu was very large and um, the Ma Fada had died with her arms wrapped around her son. Absolutely a heartbreaking story. I remember when when it happened and it was very prevalent and and you know, again, our hearts go out to the, the families and, and everyone who knew her. And I, she was such an impact in our community that I'm, you know, 
I'm glad that there is some positive coming from this, right? I mean, it's a horrifying yeah. story, but for this September 26th project to come because of that, I think will help more families hopefully avoid um, this similar situation. And there are a few things that you've mentioned that I know are on your checklist. And so I, I want to, you know, your role has been to create a lot of content for this uh, for this website and, and really provide a lot of support in the form of to-dos for families that are, some are quick and easy, right? Make sure there are batteries in, yeah. Uh, in uh, the smoke alarms and, and things like that, but others are more complicated. Can you tell us a right. little bit about um, one, what it was like to create all of those checklists and two, who you're hope what you're hoping people will gain from those? For sure. So I'll start off by saying that Fada and Moo's story is not my story to tell. Um, I'm I'm telling it for the purpose of the content of the website. It's definitely the family story to tell. The, there's a video on the website that tells a story beautifully that is done by the sister and the niece um, that were in the home. Um, and then after the tragedy happened, a bunch of us sort of regrouped and thought, what are we going to do with this? Like, this was a tragedy. This was a mom who advocated for everything for her son. But right. this part got missed by all of us, all of us involved. And, um, you know, he was learning his name and letters and to talk. But the simple command to sort of go downstairs in the event of an emergency um, wasn't some skill that he possessed. And so our, our goal in this is that 10 minutes Every every September 26 can save lives. That's our tagline. That on or around September 26, if you take 10 minutes and follow our safety checklist, and it's very clear what we're asking you to do, um, you go on the website, you click the fire safety checklist, and the very first thing it does tell you is, do you have working smoke alarms, fire detector alarms? Um, they there should be one on every floor, and they suggest that they be outside of a bedroom. And we did consult with many men of fire, many many fire departments on. On this checklist. Um, uh, two that come to mind were dads who are firefighters who had children with autism. So we did work with them to give us what they thought were like the top five things. And so the working fire alarms was a big one. You can, the sooner you're alerted to a fire, the more time you have to get out of the home. Um, the second item is then um, carbon monoxide detectors. There should also be one because sometimes um, the smell and the, that will be alerted prior to something else. So um, getting a carbon monoxide detector on every floor, the same. Then they do suggest um, a fire extinguisher on every floor. Now, I will tell you, the fire department folks that I spoke to said, they prefer you to get out. <laughs> They'd rather you get out than yes. try to fight the fire yourself. But if it is a small contained fire that for some reason you determine you think you could be safe getting it out, then go ahead and use it at fire, working fire extinguisher. And um, but again, they the state is please get out of the house. And then they do suggest two exits. And so in the event of this tragedy, um, Moo's bedroom was on the top second floor at the top of the stairs. He could not get down the stairs, but there wasn't a second exit plan, right? Um, and that's a hard one. Now, I work with another family who's in the same position. They're um, 22-year-old, pretty severely impacted son. Um, his bedroom at, is at the top of the stairs. 
We did a, put a situation in where there's actually a mattress <laughs> that they store in their garage. They okay. do have a fire rope. They don't know that he could climb out in the event of emergency or not. But there is a uh, mattress and the plan is open the window, shove him out the window. (laughs) And that's a last resort. But this two exit is is a great idea. And then there's something that I learned in this process that I had not known is called close the door initiative. I saw if that you, on the website. Tell us more. Tell us more. Yeah. If so, it's really fascinating. We, like I said, we, when we were putting this information together, we did reach out to experts. You know, I'm an ABA provider. I am not a fire, um, you know, expert, but we purposely went out and reached out to different people and said, what are the main things? And I can tell you, um, most families try to open the doors. You open the doors to try to get air. At least I think I might do that, right? So that people inside don't suffocate. But the oxygen fuels the fire. And Mm -hmm. so if you're in the event of a fire, these experts say close as many doors as possible. So if you're trapped in a bedroom, you are more safe closing the door and putting something um, underneath at the bottom of the door so air can't get in. That actually gives you that could give you up to two or three more minutes of safety um, so that a fire department could reach you. And, and that was a three big minutes one. can be life changing, right? That's that's that, right. That's significant. That gives you time to get the mattress out and go out the window potentially. Exactly, exactly. And in in the event of this tragedy, the doors were all open. Um, thinking that that was, and I think I like I said, I think I might do that too. You know, trying to get people air and oxygen, but that actually intensified the fire. It's such an interesting piece of science and we won't get into it, but I know there's a link on the website. We'll make sure that that's in our show notes and, 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 but very, very helpful in terms of fire, but you have other checklists as well. And so one of the other ones to, uh, to talk about is the natural disaster checklist, right? And I think that one, you know, there were some notes in there about, um, food and water, which we've talked about a little bit, but also it had some interesting information that I hadn't even considered about medical supplies, what, yeah. what what are we needing to think about when it comes to medical supplies and emergency emergency preparedness? That's a great question. And so um, I learned about that because, and I, I wanted to make this point, um, I spent several years training first responders in Orange County. It was part of a grant. I was at UCI at the time. Um, working in the autism and neurodevelopmental center and got a grant to train first responders. And in doing that, I actually spent a lot of time training what they called CERT responders, which are the volunteer folks through the Red Cross. There are those people on the front lines that show up in the event of a, a natural disaster. But what I've learned is as much as I trained them, they trained me and, and, and said that that crucial time before you get to those people that are going to help you, you parents still need to be prepared, which got me on this whole path of we need to prepare our families. Parents of children with autism are stressed out enough, right? And this is the last thing they're going to think about. And so we did create sort of this simple checklist about things that if you take a few minutes every year to prepare, um, then you are more likely to survive and be safe and reach the help you need. And one was medication, right? Um, There are a couple ways to do that. And we, we share on a checklist, there are some apps that you can sort of like, take a picture and download your medicines on your phone. And it is likely people are going to have their phone with them. Right. And so the, 
One of the best apps I know is the American Red Cross emergency um, app, but there are other apps where you can just store the medical information in your phone, but they also suggest having a fireproof locked box near your medicines in the event that you have to evacuate your home, you still have the medicines because a lot of our kids are on, you know, crucial medicines. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was being I thought I was being sophisticated because I had uh, in case of emergency contact ice in my phone. I thought I was sophisticated because of that, but not at all. Um, <laughs> I, I know that that's part of it, and I believe that that's part of having it in your checklist as well as making sure that you have those emergency contacts and people know the neighbors and things like that. But medications exactly. is great, and I think one thing to consider, and and I'm playing through all the ideas of having medication be available is if you're keeping some somewhere, make sure you're checking expiration dates and those types of things as well, right? So if any of you are thinking about those types of things, it's it's great, good planning, but also be mindful of, you know, medications lose some of their um, uh, impact as the longer they've been around in those types of things. For sure. Um, I really want to talk about the third checklist, which you have, which I think is so important for so many families. And I'm glad you included it because I think it's something that, again, we hear about after the fact, but not before. But um, I think you call it wandering prevention checklist. I think as ABA providers, we're more likely to have this type of knowledge because it's such a prevalent sort of like behavior challenge, which fits into our scope of practice really, really well. Um, I wanted to include it specifically, though, because, um, you know, when you are uh, and what we spoke about earlier, when you're trying to keep your home safe, but then trying to get out an emergency, those two are sort of seem like counterintuitive or counterproductive. And so we really kept that in mind when we were thinking about these things. And, um, you know, we all, you know, the statistics are, are out there that if a child wanders, you know, the high um, probability that they're going to go to some sort of water feature is, you know, strong. Um, a preventative measure we have in this is can your child swim <laughs> and know how to handle themselves around water? And are what do you know where all of the sort of more local water areas would be, whether it's a pool, a water feature, um, river? lake someone else's pool and then knowing where those things are in a certain perimeter and then also having which is a little bit different than our standard sort of um you know keep your doors locked and have a gps device is actually sort of a neighborhood tree phone tree if you will um that's sort of the old term that shows my age yeah. we used to have a phone tree <laughs> i knew exactly what you were talking about <laughs> my goodness <laughs> but um and I can think of a situation where I knew a young man who wandered and he typically was going to look for certain things he'd seen on his drive home and trying to locate them, but he didn't have the language to say what he was doing. But we sort of surmised that. And we actually um, worked with the family to set up a phone tree down both ends of the street. And the mom could send out a text and say, you know, he's left the house. We think he's looking for this. And then families could be alert, look, um, and have checkpoints. And that, that saved him at least four or five times from getting out of his street into a busier street because they live near a freeway. Um, I know recently of a young man who got out um, and got onto the 55 and was hit. Um, and he did not have a GPS tracking system. And so no one could find him. So our checklist talks about one, you know, locking um, and keeping home secure, 
Two, knowing the water features. Um, three, neighborhood phone trees, which is hard for our parents. A lot of times our parents don't want to disclose information, yeah. but in the event of a child that might wander, there's potential. I think it's super important and can be um, a really quick way. And then a GPS or tracking device. Great. Kelly, I want to ask you real quick for those in our audience who don't know, can you describe a phone tree for us? Sure. Um, it, <laughs> there is a visual on the website where it sort of starts with like one point of contact and then there's two points of contact and those two people call two more people and those two people call two more people and or text <laughs> um, or Snapchat or whatever <laughs> social media <laughs> folks are doing today. But the idea was that the parent can have one to two people that will continue on the message while they can stay focused on um, trying to locate their child. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another thing that I think is really important is making sure that, you know, the individuals that we're working with and families get opportunities to meet first responders and to meet whether it be, uh, you know, local fire department or police department or whatever it may be. Um, Is there a way to do that? Is there a way that they can go and, and so that, you know, individuals with autism can feel more comfortable with those people as, as they're trying to help them? Absolutely. Now, every specialist I spoke to, um, and I can't speak for every single city or town, but we asked a lot of them and they all said, both law enforcement and fire responders all said they want to know who the kids are and adults in their community that might need additional help. They want the kids and adults to come to the precinct, go to the fire station, meet the people. Um, For parents, they don't have a registry. So I'm going to say register, but they don't mean register, but give them the information about the child. You know, maybe they're nonverbal, maybe certain things that might help calm them down. Or if they were wandering, What is something that might entice them to the police officer? They want them to meet the fire department and police officers to know they're there to help and not scare or hurt. They want to know that information and and, um, also calming techniques and communication style. And so we certainly training first responders is crucial. But the individualness of each child is also super helpful to sort of register, if you will, with them. And I've also learned that um, if you are in need of resources, such as fire alarm or fire extinguishers, those organizations, your local level can help get them for you if you can't afford them. Mm, That's good to know. Yeah. I used to uh, work with a family and they would make cookies for the local fire department. And, you know, there's some historic, you know, he would very often run out of their home um, and uh, they would go to the fire department and they would bring cookies and they would sit down and have cookies with the with the fire, you know, the fire team and their son. And it was helpful because the son got to meet everyone and was familiar and all. And thankfully they never needed to use the emergency response services during the time that I knew them. Um, But they were, the whole goal was for them to be prepared and for him to feel comfortable with the local team and for the local team to have some understanding of him so that if there ever was a need that they could get him that help. And I think things like that are really what you're describing. It's the take some time, spend, spend a little time getting to know people, driving by, stopping in, saying hello. And that's going to go a long way in those situations. That's such a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to pass that on. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what the rules are these days with bringing cookies or not. I don't know, but (laughs) 
you know, look for me, any excuse to have cookies is a good one. So, and this is a positive way for us to be, again, being intentional in our prevention. I think that's really what it is. Um, you know, I also saw on there, um, and there was a, um, medical bracelets, medical IDs are, are that yeah. are those things you would recommend for individuals? Yeah. You know, um, that's such a, um, it's such an individualized preference. I certainly have known many children who wouldn't wear something like that, but our technology is so much better now. Um, we, you know, some children and they make them looking like they can almost look like an Apple watch or smartwatch. Um, they have some very sophisticated ones. They even have some that, um, you can sew, uh, sew a Q was a QR code into clothing. Um, there's, one where you can put um, an insert in a shoe or on the shoelace. Um, and so you can even do a temporary tattoo. <laughs> so it, it really depends. I have found it's like very unique and individualized for each child and what they'll tolerate. But we were able to find quite a huge list that people, some were free and some cost some money. And most of them had some form of technology involved. But um, GPSs have saved a number of children that I've known. Yeah. Kelly, I think the number one thing I'm hearing from you is, you know, what 10 minutes on or around uh, September 26th is really, uh, it's really the thing that I think is going to stick in my brain of, you know, check the batteries, make sure the medications are up to date, make sure you've got, you know, medical IDs and, and all those things are up to date. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that we should know about? I think you covered it all. Um, the website is up. There are printable checklists. If people, um, they're right there. You just click and see if you want to print it and have a piece of paper. We also list under each one resources to find things that you need. And then um, we are planning on um, every September 26, asking organizations to put out the word that this is the time of year again to make sure you're prepared. Great. Well, you know, thank you for so much for the work that you're doing and for bringing this to families and making sure that they're taking those those few minutes. Um, you know, hopefully everyone is, is hearing this and will make a few adjustments and they'll never, never need to hear about <laughs> emergency services. Um, but we really appreciate the work that you're doing and the time you spent making this happen for people. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know some of the stories that were shared during this week's episode are a little bit heartbreaking and bring up a lot of different emotions for us. But I hope that your takeaway from this is that you'll feel inspired and recommitted to making sure that your family and the families that you work with are ultimately putting safety at the forefront of their mind. Uh, I think safety needs to be a priority for all of us and I, I'm recommitting myself to make sure that my family and my home are as safe as possible. And I'm, I plan on spending 10 minutes every September 26th checking batteries and checking fire extinguishers and doing all those things. And also please, please uh, check our show notes for more links to more information about the September 26th project and, and, and all the other things that we discussed. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, please send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. Until next time, take care, be safe. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.